Section 36 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 The Popish Terror and the Triumph of the Court. Part 7. We have already dealt with Charles's life at Newmarket in earlier days. It is evident from Rearsby's account that his enjoyment did not diminish with years. The king was so much pleased with the country and so great a lover of the diversions which that place did afford that he let himself down from majesty to the very degree of a country gentleman. He mixed himself amongst the crowd, allowed every man to speak to him that pleased, went a-hawking in the mornings to cock-matches or foot-races in the afternoons, if there were no horse-races, and to plays in the evenings acted in a barn and by very ordinary Bartlemew Fair comedians. Of his last spring meeting in 1684 we hear again, the diversions of the king followed at Newmarket were these, walking in the morning till ten o'clock, then he went to the cockpit till dinner-time, about three he went to the horse-races, at six to the cockpit for an hour, then to the play, though the comedians were very indifferent, so to supper, next to the Duchess of Portsmouth's till bedtime, and then to his own apartments to bed. At all events Charles knew how to take a holiday. Nor was he careless of other people's comfort. We remember how he advised Cortin to wear Welsh flannel next his skin. On this occasion he sealed Rearsby's loyalty by a word of princely solicitude. The weather was very unseasonable and dirty, so that walking in the town with his majesty he observed I had but thin shoes, and advised me to get a stronger pair to prevent getting cold, which I here mention as an example of that prince's great goodness and care of those persons that came near him, however inconsiderable. After the fire, which, as we will see, saved him from the rye-house plot, but which left him without lodgings, Charles in a measure deserted Newmarket for Winchester. He had taken a liking to the place and had usually honoured Morley's house with his patronage. The burden of entertaining royalty proved severe, and it was remarked that the family would be glad if the king could distribute his favours. Did he intend, they asked, to make the bishop's house his inn? Charles took the hint, but Morley died in 1684, and Muse was translated from Bath and Wells, apparently on the understanding that the king should be assured of a good lodging. Promotions to bishoprics were indeed made on various grounds. One in especial deserves mention. Charles had proposed to raise a palace at Winchester, designed by Wren on a magnificent scale, for which it was supposed that the ninety thousand pounds found in his strong-box after his death had been destined, and with James in the court, including, of course, Louise de Querouaille and Nelly, he often came down to inspect progress. At such times the houses of the dean and prebendaries were used for their accommodation. On one occasion Charles met with a refusal of a sort to which he was not accustomed, at any rate from one of his own chaplains. The harbinger had selected Ken's prebendary house as suitable for Nelly Gwynne, but Ken thought otherwise. A woman of ill repute, he replied, ought not to be endured in the house of a clergyman, least of all in that of the king's chaplain. 
Nellie was duly provided for at the deanery, and the purity of Ken's house was left intact. A year later, when the see of Bath and Wells was vacant by the translation of Muse, Charles had his successor ready. God's fish, he exclaimed, when a crowd of claimants presented themselves. Who shall have Bath and Wells but the little black fellow who would not give poor Nellie a night's lodging? In spite of the reaction, Charles saw a reason to be careful. The city was intensely Whig, and until means could be found for converting it, no liberties could be taken. At the Lord Mayor's banquet on October 7th, every little fellow undertook to censure the king and his proceedings at that time. When Shaftesbury was prosecuted, the blow fell in the air, for the Middlesex jury threw out the bill. It is a hard case, remarked Charles, that I am the last man to have law and justice in the whole nation. Charles took the proper precautions. He gave up one more illustrious and innocent victim to the dying spirit of the terror, Plunkett, Archbishop of Armagh, and we fear that even Essex took part in the initial stages of this infamous affair. If it were so, and if, as is stated on good authority, he afterwards besought Charles to pardon Plunkett, declaring from his own knowledge that the charges were false, he was well repaid when the king replied, Then, my lord, be his blood on your own conscience. You might have saved him if you would. I cannot pardon him, because I dare not. He was no less careful to avoid a revival of the animosity against his brother. James had been continually pressing for permission to come back from Scotland. He was now told that he might do so only if he would conform to the church, or at least attend her services, conditions which he unhesitatingly refused to accept. Charles was not without those who dealt faithfully with him. It was now that Burnet presented him with his very plain letter, in which I set before him his past ill life and the effects it had on the nation, with the judgments of God that lay on him, and that was but a small part of the punishment that he might look for. The letter was a very long one, and the king read it through twice, before he threw it into the fire. He was probably more affected by Monmouth's insulting behavior in offering bail for Shaftesbury than by Burnet's letter, for if he could be hurt, it was by Monmouth. At a launch at Deptford immediately afterwards he was observed to be very serious and more concerned than the greatest business did usually make him. If Charles were to reap the full fruits of his triumph over the Whigs in Parliament, it was, as has been said, obvious that their stronghold, the City of London, must no longer remain an imperium in imperio, from which his enemies could safely defy him. And this was the more important because the contest which had hitherto been carried on with Parliament was now to be continued in the law courts, the management of the laws was the king's offensive arm. But to ensure Tory verdicts it was necessary to obtain Tory juries, and a London jury then was as little to be depended on to find for the crown against a Whig as a Tipperary jury in later days for the crown against a Moonlighter. The first point, therefore, was to secure the election of Tory sheriffs, since the sheriffs pricked the juries. At midsummer, 1682, this was accomplished by trickery worthy of parish vestrymen who wished to annoy their vicar. 
and at the end of October, James could congratulate himself upon the choice of a good and loyal mayor, as well as two sheriffs of the same stamp. The effect was instantaneous. From being the leader of a great political party, Shaftesbury fell in a moment to the condition of a hunted man. He knew that there was no chance of another ignoramus from a grand jury or even of a fair trial. Broken in health, angry, disappointed, and overwrought, his attempts at reconciliation with the court, scornfully rejected, and his credit lost with the less elastic section of the Whigs by those very attempts, his schemes for insurrection and attack upon Whitehall discountenanced by Russell, Essex, and Monmouth, he gave up the game, went into hiding in London, and then under circumstances which almost suggest connivance on the part of the government, escaped in disguise to Holland, where he died on January 21, 1683. Shaftesbury must have felt that his life had been a failure. In pursuing objects in themselves fair matters of controversy, if not actually laudable, he had shown grave errors of judgment and had committed great crimes. That he should have striven for toleration of Protestant dissent goes far by itself to redeem his memory. That he should have used his whole political influence, his astuteness in party warfare, his industry and his eloquence to ruin Danby and to exclude James, at least carries no condemnation with it. But by the secret understanding with Louis the Fourteenth, for which he was responsible, he betrayed at once his actual principles and the aspirations of those who trusted him. While from the infamy of his management of the Popish terror, there is no escape. Nonetheless, had he lived but a few years longer, he would have seen the triumph of whatever was worthy to triumph in his political principles. He would have seen the exclusion of James the toleration of dissent, and England, king and people together, lending her potent hand to the downfall of France. A scheme of far wider and more permanent character than the election of Tory sheriffs was now carried through. The apparently reasonable doctrine that a charter may be forfeited by abuse became an engine, whereby in a short time the crown made itself absolute in every important city in the kingdom. Court lawyers on their promotion, and judges who held office at the will of the crown, would indeed have deserved disgrace if they had proved unequal to the demands upon their ingenuity. The common council had, it was declared, imposed an illegal tax at the time of rebuilding the city, and in 1680 had sent in a petition against prorogation containing expressions disrespectful to the king. This was sufficient. In June 1683, a judgment of the King's Bench declared the forfeiture of the Charter, and it was restored by Charles only on conditions which made the city absolutely subservient to the Crown. At last he felt in the words of Jeffreys that the King of England is likewise King of London. That which could be done in the capital would be more easily done in the country. In most cases voluntary surrenders were made, when this was not the case, the problem was easily soluble. The election of a town clerk at Oxford without the king's express approbation was held to be an offence grave enough to demand the penalty of forfeiture. On November 29th, 
Charles asked Rearsby whether he knew of any tangible ground against York. Rearsby could produce none, but it was at length discovered that the Lord Mayor had refused a mountebank that had the King's own recommendation to erect his stage there, and that was made to serve. Nothing can illustrate more forcibly the longing of the country for rest on any terms, or the fictitiousness of much of the agitation of the past years, than this quiet acquiescence in the loss of civil liberties. The new powers were put into action without delay. All magistrates of the Shaftesbury faction were turned out, and the penal laws against dissent were once more vigorously executed. The prisons were filled, even men like Richard Baxter were arrested and confined under the Five Mile Act of 1665. The crime of some, the honest impudence of others, and the basest treachery afforded to the court the opportunity for striking a final blow against the discredited cause in the persons of its noblest advocates. While Russell and Essex, Hampton and Algernon, Sidney, Monmouth, Gray, and Howard of Eskrick were discussing the establishment of an association to demand a free parliament and in other ways to bring constitutional pressure to bear upon the government certain old fifth monarchy men soldiers and lawyers with whom shaftesbury had been closely connected had formed an entirely independent scheme of a very different kind they had resolved to kidnap charles or to assassinate him on his return from Newmarket in June 1683, and he was saved only by the accident of the fire to which allusion has been made, which destroyed his palace there and thus caused him to go back to London a few days earlier than was expected. The trade of informer was not dead, and these latter conspirators were betrayed and arrested. But it was not believed possible that the scheme had been prepared without the connivance if without the initiative of more important people, and the investigations which followed led to the arrest of Essex, Russell, Hampton, and Sidney. Gray escaped, Monmouth was allowed to hide, Howard, dragged from the chimney in which he had concealed himself, betrayed all that he knew, and more than he knew, of the consultations and objects of his friends. In the examination of the prisoners before the council, Charles was always present, and according to North, very lenient. But the verdict was certain, for the jury had been carefully packed by the Tory sheriffs, and the king permitted Russell to die, as Russell had permitted Stafford to die, on the testimony of a single witness. Rendered implacable by his refusal to compromise on matters of principle, by his reported declaration that his trial was but a continuance of the popish plot, by his assertion that a nation might defend its liberties when attacked under semblance of law, and that killing by forms of law was the worst kind of murder, Charles refused all applications for Russell's pardon. From the great house of Bedford, from his own courtiers, even from Louise de Querouaille, who had been offered a large sum for successful intervention. Speaking to Legge, afterwards Earl of Dartmouth, he said in reply to the reasons urged for leniency, All that is true, but it is as true that if I do not take his life, he will soon have mine. On July 21st, 1683, Russell went calmly to his death. 
his last days had been embittered to him by the tragic fate of one of his fellow-prisoners essex had not awaited trial and execution but had died by his own hand in the tower that charles had contrived his murder was of course suggested but it is not necessary to discuss a theory so absurd wickedness of that kind even if it could have been serviceable was utterly foreign to charles's nature essex had always been of a sombre disposition he believed in the lawfulness of suicide and the melancholy of his wife's disposition added to his own and there were considerations which appear to have acted with decisive force upon a temperament thus disposed remorse for having introduced the traitor howard among his friends the knowledge that if he were condemned his children would lose estate and rank and perhaps not least the fact that he was lodged in the room which had been that of his father lord capel before his execution End of section 36